the Life Church Reno podcast. Here at Life Church Reno, we love God, love others, and make a difference. For more information, visit lifechurchreno.com. From wherever you're listening, we pray that this message impacts you. Well, hey, it's great to see you this morning. If you're joining us online, we're so grateful. Today, we're going to land the plane on our series in the book of Judges. So if you have your Bibles, go over to Judges 17. Judges 17, verse one. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, the 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. We see a great parenting trick, trick here. If you believe that your children have stolen from you, loudly pray a curse on them <laughs> that they will die or have a terrible rash. So the son, here's his mom, praying a curse on whoever stole my money. May they die or get a terrible rash. And he's like, Mom, it was me. Please take it back. Then his mother said, the Lord bless you, my son. So she's very gracious. Quick, she did not think it was her son that stole. Probably thought it was some, one of the household staff. And then she says, the Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. So she says this, I'm so grateful that I got my money back from my thief's son. Now I'm going to charge him with breaking the second commandment. Because God clearly says, he says, don't, don't make any sort of image or idol or, or thing to be a part of your worship. And so she gets this silver, and then her next thing is going to be to do is have her son create an idol out of it. She says this. I, I, so after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith. Now it sort of reads like at the beginning her plan was to give all the silver. She's now had a second thought. She's gonna keep most of it and just give 200. And, uh, and to a silversmith who used them to make the idol. And it was put in Micah's house. Uh, now this man Micah had a shrine. So here's what we see. The, the, we kind of see this overarching theme here. That as we look at the book of Judges, we're going to look at these last few chapters. One thing that's clear to us is that the threats of cultural compromise and syncretism are deceiving. So what happens, the, the, they, the, the word syncretism literally means just to kind of take a handful of things from a number of different worldviews, ways of looking at life, or religions, and just sort of weave them together into sort of a new homemade religion. It's really the predominant faith of America today is syncretism, where you say, I'm going to take a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of the American dream, and a little bit of self-help, throw in a little bit of Oprah and some Eastern mysticism, and now I have my own personal faith. And, and what was happening here is these people are surrounded by all of these, peop these people that didn't know the one true God, and their worship was centered on crafting these images and these idols. And, and so what we see here is this woman who believes in the one true God now wants to just kind of weave in a little bit of the faith of the culture, which involved crafting things out of gold and silver and other precious metals as a part of their worship, and, and it's this picture of 
syncretism. It's a picture of, of allowing the predominant culture to influence us more than we influence the predominant culture. See, Jesus said, you are, are to be the salt of the earth. You are to be the light of the world. So the, what, the, the idea is that, that we are to influence the culture more than the culture's influencing us. But many times it goes the opposite way. And so that's what's happening here. These, these people, this is what we see over and over again in the book of Judges, is, is these, these the people of God are regularly influenced by the predominant culture, their false gods, that's what's happening here. And so after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200, gave it to a silversmith who used them to make an idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man, Micah, had a shrine, and he made an ephod, it was a thing that was a part of the Jewish worship, and some household gods, and installed one of his sons as his priest. And so again, he's sort of weaving these principles from the dominant religious culture around him, where he says, I'm just going to have my own little shrine, and, and where even though God had said that the place to worship was in Shiloh, God had said that the priests were to be of the tribe of Levite. He says, I'm going to have my own son be my own personal priest and my own personal little church here. He, and he's just being influenced by the religion of the culture. And he... And, he, and in those days, Israel had no king. This is a verse we see repeated many times in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Everyone was a law unto themselves. Whatever felt good to them is what they did. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who'd been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim, and Micah asked him, where are you from? He said, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest, and I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. And so Micah says, hey, well, this guy's actually from the right tribe. I'll fire my son from being my priest. I'll get this guy. I'll pay him. I'll feed him. He'll be my personal priest. And so the Levite agreed to live with him and the young man became like one of his sons. Then Micah installed the Levite. The young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, now here's another way, the culture influences our view of God. See, what, what, what many people in the culture think is that if I do the right thing, well, now God owes me, right? And so he says this. He says, I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. He says, man, I've got the right kind of priest now. Now God owes me. It's all gonna go my way. See, we see this theme in the book of Judges, that the people become like the people around them. They mix their view of the world with who God has called them to be. But the thing is, God calls us to be, Jesus calls us to be in the world, not of the world. John 17, right before Jesus would go to the cross, here's how he prays for us. He says, I've given them your word and the world. We talked a few weeks ago, sometimes in the Bible, talks about the world. It's talking about this world system, which is opposed to God's kingdom, God's rule and reign. He says, so I, I, he says, I have given them your word and the world, this world system that's opposed to the kingdom of God, has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. Now, here's we see this idea that, that the world, world, thinking of like the earth and all of the people in it. He says, taking them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. And so Jesus is telling us, praying for us, that, that we would be in the world, that we live in, on earth with all of these people, but that we are more of an influencer than one who's being influenced. And so that we're in the world, we're not 
of the world. We are salt and light. And so many times we kind of mix all of these false views of God that, that are predominant in the culture or feel good to us with, with the, we mix it with, with the real God of scripture. And so sometimes, you ever heard someone say, well, my God would never do this. Or someone say, you know, I like to think of God like this. I like to think of God as a really nice old man who gives me things, like Santa Claus. I like to think of God, uh, my God wants me to be happy all the time. And so when we say words like that, what we're doing is we may not be crafting an image of God out of gold and silver, but we're actually crafting an image of God in our minds, which is different than the one true God revealed in scripture and revealed in the person of Jesus. And so we, we see this thing where, where cultural influence and, and syncretism, where we just kind of blend false views of God with the God of scripture is, can be very deceiving. Here's second truth that we see in this, the last few chapters in the book of Judges is that the potential for darkness in the human heart is astounding. Now, if you've been here for very many of these messages in the book of Judges, there's all kinds of weirdness in this book. And we talked about the beginning. If this was a movie, it would be an X-rated movie for sure. And I would love to tell you that the last few chapters of Judges, that it all gets better. I'd love to tell you that it just wraps up and it's just a real happy ending and everyone lives happily ever after, but here's the truth. The last few chapters of Judges make the beginning parts of Judges look like a Disney movie. I mean, it takes a turn from bad to worse. And, and what we see, we, we see this, these horrible stories. We see women treated as property. We see sexual perversion and sexual assault at its most extreme and its most horrific. We see violence and revenge to the extreme. We see this, we see, what we see is this, this a picture of the potential for the darkness in all of our hearts. It's a picture of our sin nature unrestrained. It's a picture of humanity at its very worst. In fact, you read, if you just read the last few chapters of the book of Judges, there's part of you that's like, why is this even in here? It seems like this shouldn't even be in the Bible. Why is it here? But the reason it's there is it's a picture of, as the book ends, it says, and Israel had no king, and everyone just did whatever they wanted to do. It's this picture of when we live lives unrestrained and just kind of give in to the worst parts of our sin nature. See, Jesus spoke of the evil in our hearts, Mark seven twenty. He said, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. See, the Jewish culture in Jesus' day was very focused on eating the right stuff, on the right dishes that had been ceremonially cleansed and all this stuff. And if you ate the wrong stuff on the wrong dishes with the wrong utensils, they would say that, that you'd been made unclean. And Jesus says, it's not what you eat or what you eat it on that makes you clean or unclean. And he says, that's what's, it's about what's inside of you. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, all of the evils from inside and defile a person. I'm going to invite my friend, Dr. Dusty Braun, to join me. Let's give it up for Dr. Braun. Dusty is a psychologist in private practice. Also, he and his wife, Christy, on our staff team overseeing our, our life groups and adult discipleship. And, and so, Dusty, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Nobody knows more about the darkness of the human heart than Dusty Braun. And, <laughs> Thanks. And so, uh, 
So Dusty, you have a unique perspective as a pastor and a psychologist in private practice. Take a couple of minutes and unpack how you see our sin nature and the potential for darkness in our hearts. Yeah, so I think you know, one of the things, like you guys are all sitting here and you're all very civil. You look all very nice. Um, 95%. I always kind of leave out the true. 5%. That is true. There's about 5% of you, you need to work on your face during the sermon. But, <laughs> um, but, okay, so we drive streets, we go to stores, and we don't end up stabbing each other. And that's because we, we have a certain uh, persona, a self, that we put out to the world. And that's like, that's our nice person face, right? That's the, the part of us that's like, I know how to act. I know what to say when people say normal things to me. And I know, um, I know how to be in the world, right? And so well, one of the things that can happen, uh, especially in, our, in the Christian world, is that we can push down the dark places inside of us, the, the potential for evil that does exist in our hearts. And we'll talk about that in a second. And, and we, we fill it up with, with scriptures and Christianese, and we have the right radio stations in our cars. It, it, but j- just because you haven't committed murder yet, it doesn't mean that you won't commit murder, that you couldn't commit murder. Dave might be an axe murderer. We don't know. He doesn't have an axe. Doesn't mean he's moral or good, but he might be an axe murderer. You never know. Um, you do. You never know. You, you see this play don't out. Look in my crawl space. Huh? Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Um, <laughs> so you see this play out with uh, with with Peter and Jesus, and in, in, in the night before Jesus goes to be crucified, when Jesus tells Peter, "You're going to deny me three times before the sun comes up," and Peter's like, "No, I'm not. I'm not going to do it." And then he goes out and he denies Jesus. What was Jesus seeing? He was seeing the potential evil, the evil in his heart. He knew what he was already going to do. How many of you hate stupid drivers? Like, hate stupid drivers. How many of you ever run a stupid driver off the road? Oh, a couple people. Yes. Wow. That wow. is awesome. That Some is great. Life, that, like that is fantastic. Right. So most days when Prius boy cuts me off and then goes now, 50. Dusty, Dusty used to have a Prius. I did. So I can make fun of it. And I'm from California. So I can make fun of that too. So when Prius boy cuts me off and he's going 50 miles an hour in the fast lane, most days I'm good. I back off. I pull over, go around him, all of those types of things. You catch me on a bad day and Prius boy cuts me off and he has California license plates and he has a coexist bumper sticker on the back of him. <laughs> The potential for me to tell him that I am his number one fan in that moment goes way up. But if I'm truly honest, what I'm actually thinking is what I would like to do with my rather large truck to his Prius. And that's the murder that's in my I think, heart. I think you're the only one that does that. I think that's not, that is it's not true. You. you told first service, you Sometimes envision I rockets. I have rocket launchers on my car. Yes, yes. <laughs> Okay, so that, that is the evil within this, right? Now, I, I don't plan on going and murdering Prius boy, but that murderous rage is in my heart. That's, that's part of the, the, the heart. So in, in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so Carl Jung talked about this idea of the, the shadow side. And he said, what you most need to know will be found where you least want to look and the, the idea with that is that you have to be able to look inside yourself because those fantasies of having an affair with your coworker, you don't think you're ever going to do it. They're just fantasies. But that's the potential evil that's inside of you. That jealous rage that you have for that person that wronged you and you dream up all these ways of hurting that person. That's the potential, the evil that lives inside of your heart. 
Yeah, people say, listen to your heart. Sometimes that's like the stupidest thing you could possibly do. That's the dumbest thing you could do. Yeah. Now, before you were in private practice, you were a prison psychologist. And uh, what did that time teach you about the potential for darkness in the human heart? You know, I... Uh, one of my favorite stories, I, I had to weed out like 70% of the best prison stories. If you want to hear the really good ones, come find me afterwards. They're definitely R-rated. But um, the... <laughs> so weird. That's the evil in your heart. Okay. You enjoyed the story I told you before church started this no, morning. No, I didn't. I felt dirty. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so here's one of the cleaners. So you get two inmates. I, I, I had a building. It was my building. I, I did all the clinical work in that building. And I'm sitting, I'm doing one-on-one therapy. And then there's a couple of knuckleheads that just drive everybody nuts in the building. And we'll call them inmate Joe, and then we'll call them inmate Petey. So inmate Joe was the most manipulative, lying, jacked up dude that you could ever imagine. His crimes were horrific. He kind of ran the building. He's a big dude, worked out all the time. Everybody steer clear of Joe. Little Petey needed a lot of work because little Petey, I think, liked to get beat up and he had a big mouth and he was scrawny, a scrawny little white guy. And so they're about to open up the day room. Dusty, yes. I, I, don't, I don't see race. <laughs> Can I tell my story? <laughs> Okay, so they're about to open up the doors for day room, and Joe and Petey are yelling at each other, and Joe is telling Petey what he is actually going to do to Petey, and Petey is telling Joe what he thinks he's going to do to Joe. It's not going to happen. And I look up at the officer sitting, sitting up there, the tower officer, and he's the one that hits the button that lets everyone out. He's got a big smile on his face because he knows what's about to happen. The floor officers look at each other, and they unclip their pepper spray. They know what's going to happen. And then they nod at each other, the doors open, and Joe runs over, throws Petey back in the cell, slams the cell door, and begins to pound on Petey. And the floor officers walk over and open up the food port. My wife thought I said food court for a service, which she was like, I didn't understand the story. It's, it's there's like no, a mall. There's no food, food courts in prison. <laughs> but it opens up the food port and empty two cans of pepper spray. Now, while all these guards are smiling, are you smiling? Oh, yeah. It's entertaining <laughs> as heck. <laughs> So who's evil in this story? You. Yes. <laughs> All of us. Everyone involved in this. The guards for enjoying this, for the, the guards that are inflicting pain, the guards that let violence happen. So, look, here's the, here's the idea with this. We are all evil. If you look at World War II, and you look at the majority of the people, there's very few people that were Diedrich Bonhoeffer, pastor and spy that, 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 that came against Nazism or Corey Tim Boone that, that kept Jews in her house and helped rescue people. Very few stories of heroes in World War II. And so the move is to look at yourself and to think, I am at worst a guard at Auschwitz. Or I am at minimum the bystanders, the, the citizens, the civilians that did nothing to confront evil. It's good. So personally, how do you keep from uh, the sin nature from winning in your own life? So I think there's a couple of perspectives to have. And, uh, you know, I hate to go all dark on you, but it is the, the great news is that the story doesn't end, right? The great news is that we have a savior that comes into our hearts, that cleans us up. And so I, th- I think the move is to want to get rid of the idea that the persona I put out to the world is the real me. It's not the real you. What is the evil inside your heart? And that can only be done with two things. One, living out community. Who knows your stuff? 
Do you have a person, people in your life that know all of your deepest, darkest impulses, know all the things going on? That's the only way to walk that out is to be fully open and honest. And then I think the second thing is to take a low view of self and a high view of the gospel. The low view of the self says, yes, I've, I've said a prayer. I've given my heart to Jesus. My, my eternal salvation is secure. But taking that continual low view of self to say, I'm not perfect and I need the gospel and the grace of God to be in my life. And for any of you that are in here today, thinking to yourself, everything that he just talked about doesn't apply to me. Be very, very careful because it means one of two things. Either one, you are incredibly naive to the evil and the depravity in this world and you are so susceptible to being hurt by evil. But the second thing, if this doesn't apply to you, Check your heart for the sin of judgment and pride. Bring that to God, because that is just as evil as everything else. Let's give it up for Dr. Braun. Another, a theme that we see in the book of Judges that we talked about a little bit, and as we kind of wrap this series up, just want to be reminded of, is that God's ability to use the deeply broken is encouraging. So there's this bad news that we're really broken, but there's this good news that, that God is in the business of loving and using broken people. And so we've seen this over and over in the book of Judges, these people that were just deeply flawed, deeply broken, deep, deeply messed up, and, and, and they were still a part of God's story. And in fact, if you look at Hebrews 11, a lot of people call this chapter the, the hall of fame of faith, where the writer of Hebrews talks about how just God has done these great things through all these people. Most of those people listed are like deeply messed up. Let me show this to you. Hebrews eleven seven it says by faith Noah so Noah you know builds the ark saves saves the human race by by going in there and as soon as after he saves the world the next thing he does is just get so drunk he just takes off all of his clothes and now his family's just looking at him naked not naked but in Texas we say naked and, and so you know he he's he's messed up guy and then we see in verse eight by faith Abraham. Now, there's no one on the planet in history that's been more respected than Abraham. Jews, Christians, Muslims all look at Abraham and say, he's a great guy. And, and, but Abraham, who's, who, who is the, you know, God blesses incredibly, has this faith, goes to this unknown place. God says he's going to have kids even though he, he was late in life. He gets tired of waiting on God, ends up getting the, the maid pregnant. He, when he would get scared, people would look at his wife and say, wow, she's so pretty. His, his next thing he'd say is, hey, she's really just my sister. You can have her if you want her. I mean, he's a messed up guy. Then we see in verse, verse 11, uh, I'm sorry, in verse nine, by faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac. Isaac had crazy division in his marriage and in his family. And Jacob, Master, who was a master manipulator and a terrible father. Verse 11, and by faith even Sarah. Now Sarah, when God tells her and Abraham they're gonna have kids even though they're old, she laughs at God's promise. She gets tired of waiting. It's her idea for Abraham to sleep with the maid. Once, once Hagar gets pregnant and has Ishmael, she's incredibly unkind to Hagar and Ishmael. She was, she was as messed up as anybody. Verse 22, by faith Joseph. Joseph was an arrogant little brother. Irritating. I mean, if you have a dream where all of your siblings are bowing to you, the dumbest things you can do is tell all your siblings, oh yeah, I had this dream, God told me, you're all gonna bow to me one day. He was a messed up guy. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, who was a murderer. But verse 31, the only thing different about Rahab is that, the, is that of all these people, Rahab's the only one who, who's, whose flaw is really apparent right here in the verse. It says, by faith, the prostitute Rahab. 
And so again, we see another broken, fallen person, verse 32, and what more shall I say? Now the writer of Hebrews is gonna touch base on a lot of the stuff we've seen in the book of Judges. He says, I don't know how time to tell you about Gideon, who we talked about earlier, how, how he was awesome, but he also lacked this integrity. He said, I don't wanna be your king, but then he acted like he was the king. His family life was a giant mess. And then Barak, who was a coward. Samson, who, who was sexually immoral and broke all the, the pieces of his vow. And Jephthah, who made vows he never should have. And then talks about a King David, who the Bible says was a man after God's own heart, but was an adulterer and a murderer. And Samuel, now Samuel was pretty great, better than most of the rest, but he ends up appointing his sons who were evil and flawed into points of leadership. What we see is that this hall of fame of faith, the greatest heroes of the Old Testament were, were, were all deeply flawed and broken. You say, oh, that was just Old Testament stuff. We see New Testament. Peter denies Jesus three times. We see Paul, before he became a Christian, he was in the business of killing Christians. What we see is this principle that God uses deeply broken and fallen people, and that is very encouraging. Now, it doesn't mean any of those things were right, and it doesn't mean that there weren't consequences for these people and the people around them but we can find great encouragement that he can use us in spite of our flaws and brokenness. It takes us to our last point. The grace of God is unrelenting. Amen. See, as I read the book of Judges, I can't help but think that, it, that if I was God, somewhere early on in the story of the people of Israel, I just would have given up on them. This pattern of becoming like the cultures around them and, and, and beginning to worship false gods or worship God in ways that he would said isn't the way to worship him. And whenever life was going good, they would forget God. And then, and then the, the effects of their sin would make life difficult. And then they would cry out to God, he would save them. And it just, the pattern just keeps repeating itself over and over and over again. They keep forgetting God and doing the wrong thing. And if I was God at some point in there, I'd have just said, I'm done. But each time they cried out to God, he would raise up a deliverer and save them. It's this picture uh, that the grace of God is unrelenting. And see, you see that the book of Judges, it's easy to read these last few chapters and just think, what an incredible downer. Well, this is, this is like, you ever like watch a movie and, you're like, and, and the movie just ends and you're like, it feels like the movie shouldn't have ended like that. I just paid $11 to leave confused and depressed. And if you just read the book of Judges alone, that's, that's kind of how you just kind of end it. Like, wow, it just ends by saying, and, and there was no king, and everyone did right, what was right in his own eyes. It just says, man, these people, they were just evil and doing dumb stuff. That's so why everyone did what they thought was right. It just ends terribly. But, but the amazing thing about what's going on in these last few chapters in the, in the book of Judges is paralleled by what's happening in, in the next book in the Bible. It goes Judges, then it goes Ruth. And Ruth was this lady, wasn't even a part of the nation of Israel. She was poor, she was a widow, she was a foreigner. But, but she did, and unlike everyone else in Israel that seems like they're doing the wrong thing at the end of the book of Judges, she does trust God in, in the middle of incredibly difficult circumstances. And while the book of Judges ends like just a confusing downer, the book of Ruth, Ruth ends like this, for Ruth 4, 21. It says, Salmon the, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. See, what we see here is that even in this moment where the people of God are doing everything wrong, 
God hasn't given up on them. In fact, he's still working behind the scenes. His grace is unrelenting. They're doing everything wrong, but he's working behind the scenes. See, when it says, and then Jesse, the father of David, what it's clear here is that God is working behind the scenes and that he's going to bring a deliverer and a king. Now, now David was a great deliverer and a great king, and he led Israel to its greatest moment in its history, but he was still an imperfect king. But at the same time, he's this shadow, he's this forerunner of his great, 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 great grandson who would be the perfect deliverer and the perfect king. See, what we see is this picture that, that even when God's people are doing everything wrong, that God is still at work behind the scenes because his grace is unrelenting. Really, it's a, it's a picture of the gospel. See, Romans 5 verse 6 says this. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ didn't die for us because we were doing everything right. He died for us because we were doing everything wrong. He says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, what's going on here in the book of Judges, in this parallel book, the book of Ruth, it's a picture of God's unrelenting grace that even when his people are at their very worst, he is still working behind the scenes on their behalf to save them. He's still working behind the scenes on our behalf to save us. And so here's the truth. No matter how big you've messed up, his grace is bigger. And no matter how far you feel like you've gone, his grace goes farther. And no matter if you feel like everyone's given up on you and you've even given up on yourself, his grace will not give up on you. It is an amazing, unrelenting, best news in the world kind of grace. It's the kind of grace worth building your life on. Let me pray for you. So Father, we are grateful that even though we have the potential for incredible darkness in our hearts, and even though in our worst day, in our worst moment, any of us are capable of, of doing the unimaginable. God, we're grateful that none of that shocks you. And that it's because of that and in spite of that, that you never give up on us and that your grace is unrelenting. And that even when we are at our worst, you're still working behind the scenes to deliver us, to save us. So Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him in our place living the perfect life that we could never live, dying the terrible death that we deserve to die, rising from the dead, conquering our greatest enemy, sin and death and hell. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Life Church Reno podcast. Remember to subscribe to hear more messages like this and we'll see you soon.